Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. First and foremost, we'd like to wish everybody a prosperous and happy new year. Since the podcast started in May of last year, we've been really grateful and really thankful that we've had the opportunity to speak to world-class practitioners in their respective fields, and we know there's going to be a lot more of that coming this year. As we mentioned in the intro, it's important to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to speed with when new episodes are released, and you can also follow us on Twitter at gold dust podcast and you can visit our website at www.thegolddustcoach.com now without further ado we'd like to welcome today's special guest we've got on matt edwards a former gb swimmer and royal marine commando who had a life-changing experience whilst on pre-selection for entry into the british special forces matt is an inspirational person with an incredible story. Hello, Matt. Welcome, and thank you for being with us today. How are you? Yeah, great. Nice to meet you, uh, Keith, and nice to meet you, David. Great to finally finally catch up and uh, start this exciting uh, venture ahead. Yeah, good. Well, enjoy. So listen, prior to serving as a Royal Marine Commando, sharing with us what your previous life was like I know you, 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 we've had conversations in the past where you, you're a swimmer, a highly competitive individual. Share with your story. Well, my, uh, I, as a, young, as a young, young nipper in Norfolk, there wasn't a lot to do. So uh, I think my parents, the easiest way to get, get me under control was to put me in some sort of sporting, sporting class. My dad was a, a, a high-talented uh, sailor. And uh, he sort of said to my mum and dad and just said, when, look, in order for them to learn to sail, I want them to learn to swim first. Um, and I was about 11 years old at this point. Went to a swimming class uh, at my local school and the teachers just sort of said to my parents, has he swum before? Bearing in mind, at this, up to this point, I used to be afraid of the water. And my parents went, no, he, exactly as I've just said, he was just scared of the water. So five swimming lessons later, I've, I've joined a swimming club and the venture sort of started there. I sort of went to my first gala um, and then sort of took a win, which then flourished. And then from there on, my, I suppose my swimming career picked up. I then got picked up through uh, English schools and then from English schools got recognised within a talent pool for uh, GB or for Great Britain. And then from there, the, the, future, the future went uh skywards and i suppose i was on this roller coaster that just sort of the only way it ended was the way i chose to end it and that was to unfortunately run away from sport a year out from uh beijing olympics in 2007 now at a at an early age you were you were traveling the world representing great britain looking back now how was that experience and how did it help shape you as a person for for me it definitely developed me as a person to, to, to see lots of different environments. I've got a better appreciation. Uh, I suppose uh, I was living by the seat of my pants at, at such a young age. I was influenced by all these different personalities and people. And I suppose it, I, I, the only way I can describe it, it was just like, it was this flash of light. It, I just didn't, my, my, my backside didn't really touch the floor. And I suppose, it, I, the only way I could stay on that train was by, by enjoying it and, and going forward. But then when, what it has allowed me to do today is, is that greater appreciation for, for what I'm currently doing at the minute is rehabilitation. So with the rehabilitation, it, without that sport in and underlying background through appreciation of sport, it has allowed me to develop and push through the rehabilitation process um, at a much greater speed and I've got a much greater appreciation of understanding my body and the, 
the other things in life, i.e. travel, family, um, because at the time when I was young, I didn't really, I didn't really have time to, to think about friends and family because it was all about me at the time. Um, and I suppose what that has done now is allowed me to appreciate the most important people that are around you, which is that support network. Now you mentioned at the beginning about running away from the sport and you've shared the story with us about the pressures of being an elite athlete and preparing for the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Can you share with us a little bit around that experience and then also what happened next with you leaving the sport? So, um, so we're actually, if we go back to 2006, um, I had a fantastic year traveling the world, um, doing the, the GB circuit. And, and from that point there, it was the performance talent director said, it's important that we get the next year right. Um, because we're a year out from Olympics and, and what we don't want to be doing is, is trying to make massive changes in, in that important year. So by, by that, uh, I was 20 years old at this point and I suppose I put, I, I suppose I put all my faith, trust and everything that I'd known up to 20 years old into the system. But what I did, what I wasn't aware of, and this is what I've got a great appreciation of now, is is how you deal with uh, unwanted pressure and how we deal with that in in this day and age, whether it's through sport or just day to day uh, environment. So I got to uh, Manchester. Uh, it was actually qualification for World Championships, and I'd just done two hundred butterfly and qualified for the 2008 Olympics for Beijing, I'd qualified in second. And this was the first time I'd sort of, in my whole uh, swimming career, had come second, but qualified. Well, me being a bit of a perfectionist, this, this just didn't sit well with me. I sort of really struggled with my headspace, um, with the coaches going, yeah, that's fine, we're a year out, but, and I just couldn't get around in my head. This unwanted pressure that, I'd already put on, I suppose the expectations on me were so high um, because, and I wanted to deliver what they were in, a, in effect asking of me. And then I think with the combination of the, the media pressure at 20 years, nearly 21 years old, I, I just didn't know how to deal with it. And coming away from Manchester on the Saturday evening, um, I, I didn't have to compete on the Sunday. I suppose I had far too much time to think. And as a, young, as a young adult at that time, I didn't know how to deal with the emotional side um, and, and the unwanted pressures because at the time, British women, we didn't really have a media team that sort of guided and influenced us. I suppose it was that, um, just get on with it, you'll be all right. And I suppose the pressure just got to me and I decided to walk away. And I sort of, the only way I, I, I dealt, dealt with it was I took myself to Leicester um, for some reason, I've never been to Leicester at this point. I would, and I just went, I just want coffee. So I just went and had it. I, went, I found a coffee shop on my own and I wanted to contemplate of where it had all gone wrong. Um, because in my head, the world had ended uh, because I'd come second. Uh, even though what I did look at back now is I still qualified, but I didn't recognize that at the time. I'd come second and that was not good enough in my eyes. Um, and I happened to just, I suppose, where I come round the corner from outside the train station, there was a, uh, an Armed Forces Careers Office. And from that Armed Forces Careers Office, I sort of just swung my head in and I just see a, a bloke there with a green beret on. And I was like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And for some reason, I, I entered the building and uh, I had a couple of blokes just look at me, like because I was only 55 kilos at this point, blonde hair. Um, and I just said, oh, can you tell me a little bit more about the services? And I suppose the, the only thing they asked me was, well, what's your background? I went, well, I'm, I get paid to do sport, but I don't want to do it anymore. And they went, okay, well, let's go, let's go upstairs, do some pull-ups on the completion. If your pull-ups are all right, you can then go and do a, uh, a test, and we'll find out which service suits you best. Well, I did 15 pull-ups. They went, yeah, that's good enough. And then from there, they said, go and sit a test. I come out with 82%. They went, 
yeah, don't worry about the rest of the services. You, we are, the Royal Marines only take the best, so um, you're coming with us, son. So, and that was that was the roller coaster. And I suppose at that point in time, I just, I just see it as an, a way of it. Is it escapism, or I didn't because I didn't know want to deal with these unwanted pressures. I just wanted a way forward. And it's not that I was trying to escape because I, I didn't like swimming. It's I just didn't know how to deal with these pressures and I didn't want to let people around me that were working so hard to to let them down. And I didn't want to go through that unwanted feeling of coming second, third, because I think that would have hit me even harder. So in hindsight, I've learned a lot from that, but I've had a fantastic, I, I, I look back and reflect and I've had a fantastic you know, seven years as an elite athlete. And then I've been in currently still in the service. Uh, I've been in the Royal Marines for 13 and a half years. So you find yourself in the Royal Marines, Matt. There you are. I know when we first spoke, which was a, a wonderful experience for me, you were very open as you are now and start telling me about this journey, uh, the swimming, you're telling me about the media and the pressure that came with pre uh, Beijing Olympics, you find yourself in this career office now in the Royal Marines. Now, it takes 32 weeks to complete uh, that course and is reputed to be one of the toughest training programs in NATO, if not the world. How did you find the discipline and the routines of training to become a Royal Marine commando? I, I, I would say I adhere to that sort of ethos very very well because i'd been brought up in a, a firm a firm household uh, where discipline was at the highest at the highest point my dad was very much he 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 wanted to join the royal navy when he was younger but couldn't get through due to uh, a medical condition and i suppose he carried that on through his sea cadets and we got brought up like that and then continuing on with the the sporting side the sport inside is very much exactly like the military. In order to get to where you want to be um, as an athlete or uh, as a soldier, you can't cut corners. You have to go through a, a timely discipline uh, process in order to go through. Um, so, yeah, I, I naturally adapted to that fairly well. And I, I suppose that's where I, I, got, I got a nickname within training called Smiler. And um, and I, and I spoke. And I'm still good friends with a couple of my training team because some some people have either left the service or, or gone on to do other ventures. But I just said to, I said to them like maybe a couple of years out when I sort of plucked up a bit of courage because they'd gone from being these big scary training team of raw marines to actually becoming good friends. Um, and I just said, I, you know, when I was smiling, I, I wasn't doing it to to be rude. I just said, I, it's just me as a nature. And they went, yeah, we know that we sort of gathered that that you know because i the training was a different intensity to being an athlete but what i took in what respect in, in terms of an athlete you're you're a very refined well-tuned i so in in terms of if you was to put two cars together an athlete is a ferrari a lamborghini a royal marine is a, a Land Rover Defender. We are robust. We are we're, we're able to repair ourselves at any opportunity. We're able to think on our feet at any opportunity. And we're able to just keep going through. And that's what 32 weeks training it sort of encompasses in you. And the, one of the biggest mottos um, that the Royal Marines uh, I have taken on throughout my whole career, and I will probably carry on this for the rest of my life, is, is that cheerfulness in the face of adversity. And I suppose that's what I was probably showing them that even, and I suppose that's why they never really took offense to it, even though at the time the, uh, the Royal Marines had to play hardball because that's part of natural training is that I was showing that cheerfulness in the face of adversity and not just giving up at the first hurdle um, because that's what makes us and shapes us to who we are today. Mm -hmm. Now, Matt, you, you went from the Royal Marines and decided to go in for special forces selection. Well, how long 
were you actually in the Royal Marines before you actually decided to go towards that? So I'd done, I'd done, originally, I wanted to go after my first tour of conflict. Um, but because the, the, I was such a junior Marine at the time, I got advised that actually with a little bit more experience, it would probably best suit you if you was to go later on in life. So I'd been in, I'd been in the service uh, 10 years at this point. I'd done three, three tours of uh, different areas of conflict. Um, and I suppose I, I, before I'd, I'd come back from Afghanistan after my third tour of, uh, so this was my third tour of a different operational environment. And um, I took recruits through training uh, because I'd picked up promotion. And then I went on to be a, uh, a physical training instructor to take, to refine the recruits, to try and make them the best, best of what they are. Because what, you don't realize and, and, I, and I've already highlighted on this is that training team are a massive influence on you even to this day I still remember my training team and that's why I suppose I, I naturally gravitated towards the, the physical training branches because of my sporting background and I felt like I could enhance um, and maybe refine the lads that are coming through to be a better product um, because obviously in this day and age the techniques that we used 10 years ago are, are completely different to what we use now because we've got a different, different sort of clientele that's coming through the door. Um, so yeah, so from that, I, I just sort of, I sort of missed soldiering really. Um, and I suppose I'll, I'll touch on it. This comes from a bit of mental health really is, is the fact that my, my, what I was really trying to do was scratch an itch that wasn't really there. And what I mean by that is, because I'd had so many tours back to back, I developed this, this, I suppose it's not really a condition, but all I wanted to do was, was go out and be back around the lads and doing the job that I trained for. And I'd become so conditioned to this, which I suppose the only way I could do that was by going to SF Special Forces Selection. And I suppose that's where, where I was trying to go, where in actual fact, in the grand scheme of things, I probably it probably wasn't the best move for me at that point in my career because I had quite a lot going on. Um, but yeah, in, in order to get where I was, it was 10 years within my career because I'd had a, had a, a wealth of experience. I, I just felt it was the next exciting move uh, and chapter in my life. Mm. Exciting. I mean, the adrenaline rush, I mean disciplines and having a purpose which is I like I love the analogy of elite athlete being the Ferrari the Lamborghini and then you've got the Royal Marine commandos who are the who are like the Land Rovers but there's some class Land Rovers about now on a pre-course ahead of the official special boat service you, you sustained a dislocated left ankle then after 12 months of rehab uh, you tried for selection again, but it was the right place, wrong time. Share with us why this was the case. So obviously, uh, I'll, I'll just take you through a few steps just because I think that might help paint a better picture. Um, in order to be part of UK Special Forces selection uh, process to be put forward, you obviously have to hit, hit a few criterias in that. So obviously, you have to have one enough experience. Um, and it's not ex necessary experience. It's just so because the the what those guys do is is work in slightly smaller teams compared to what we would necessarily do within the Royal Marines. So it's a different outfit for, and it is it, a it's a different. I suppose it's like a different discipline. It's like doing the fifteen hundred meters to the sprint. You know, you you train in two different different beasts within that within that entirety. So. Um, prior to that, obviously, there's a number of selection criterias, um, and you do a pre-course, which is basically the SBS are taking you through, and they're just testing and adjusting you and saying, actually, well, you'll get graded, and then within that grading process, they'll say whether you're good enough to go to that next stage. I got to the, the very last stage where I was a week out from getting ready to go on to the actual selection process the first time round in November 15. 
And as I was coming down one of the, the hills within the Brecon Beacons on a test march, um, which at this point I was 33 kilometers into the test march, um, Hur Hurricane Abigail was coming around and I remember looking at the start of the test march going, wow, um, are we really going out in this? And I just remember the, the director and staff going, lads, if you need to get from, get to that mission, you will go out in regardless. So don't think you're getting out of this march. And that was enough for me. Um, and yeah, the march was going seamlessly up to this point. And I could see the, I could see a Land Rover Discovery in, in the far distance. And um, that was my final checkpoint. And as I was just dotting and darting, coming down the features in the safest route possible. Um, but because you're coming down at speed, I suppose you don't take for granted, but you, it's that risk versus reward. You, you've, got to, you've got to move from across the ground as quickly as, and as safely as possible. And I, I suppose, did I take my eye off the pressure? I don't know, I can't answer that. But when I did slip um, down the, the wet feature, or the hill that is, um, I noticed that my, my foot was uh, turned inwards uh, and facing backwards. And I sort of had that condor moment going, hang on a minute, what's this all about? Because I, I, all I remember is, is hearing a crack. And I, and I, I, it just felt natural. It, nothing hurt up to this point. Um, I just remember a couple of lads going past going, you're all right, Royal? And I was like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Um, and then from there, obviously, yeah, I'm just sort of sat helplessly on the hillside um, in the rain, thinking, what do I do next? So you dislocate your ankle. It's, you're sat there, you've, you've got a, a beacon on your, on your burger. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah, no, so, so like, we, we, because of, obviously, uh, because of safety and and I suppose it, it's a good reflection tool. This this beacon that we have in the in the top of our packs is to allow you to uh, do a reflection piece because at the end of every day they'll bring up everyone's uh, trace and so you can see where you went wrong and and it's it's more used as a learning tool but it's also there as a as a safety net and it's very very rare that someone has to use one um, and I suppose. When I look down at my foot and I see a couple of lads going by, because at this point I didn't think it was a problem. Um, I, 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 I suppose I was just, I was, I was so close. And then I just thought, oh no, I'm going to have to press this beacon. I'm like thinking, and, and one thing and we pride ourselves in the Marines is, like you don't do that. It's like, uh, I've got, I could tell you a, a hundred stories where I'd been knocked off a, off a ship. And I remember the captain going, why didn't you pull your life jacket? because oh, the lads would have, would have made me get a crate of beer in. And so, yeah, I, I just sort of had that running through my head and I thought, oh no, what are the lads going to say about me if I press this beacon? And I, 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 I didn't even think about my foot at this point. And I thought, right, I, I, and I, I, after about 10 minutes, I, I started to get really cold. And I thought, like, I'm just going to have to suck it up and, and come up with the world's greatest excuse. So I press the beacon, you get text message come through and on completion of that text message, you just put, I just put SOS, need help. Um, and then obviously they send out a Kazivac team at this point. Well, because it was, we had the, the, the tail end of Hurricane Abigail coming over the top of the Brecon Beacons, um, it, was, it would have to be a foot Kazivac. Um, so eventually see the team coming up. Um, by this point, I've decided that if I don't get my leg back into the right position all I had was I'm going to lose my leg if I don't get it in because I'd seen enough stories and I've done enough stuff in Afghanistan is you need the blood flow back to that that joint or that foot as soon as possible otherwise you're going to sustain a horrific injury and worst case scenario amputation so and that was all I had so eventually uh, I tried moving it and at this point obviously shock set in and I'm in quite a lot of pain so I've just literally kicked it with my right foot and it's gone back in and I've took my belt off and done a figure of eight just to hold it in place until the until the team come in and uh, yeah some people think I'm mad for but I just I suppose reality 
uh, set in that I was on the hill, cold, wet, hungry, uh, desperate to get in the warm. Um, and yeah, just to try and work out had it done some permanent damage or was it, was it, well, I, uh, the exact words from, from the, uh, the directing staff was, can you stand on it? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tried to stand on it, sat straight back down. <laughs> he went, I was joking, sit back down. And he carried me off and um, we got into the, um, we got into the four by four at the time. It was, um, and I said, he said, do you want any pain relief? I went, yeah, if it's all right. He goes, I'll go and get you some Antonox. And from there, he went, I haven't got any Antonox. He said, you're going to have to have paracetamol. I went, why is this paracetamol to me? I said, come on. I said, you can see how, my, my, by this point, my leg was just like a balloon. Um, and then he suggested, do I need, do I, should I go and see a physio? I went, look, I, I, I wouldn't often say this. Can we just get an x-ray first? And then I'll try and replan so I can get on the test march the next day. And I think they all thought I was a little bit loopy, but in my head, I was like, I just, I'm, I'm going on that test march. I was just going to get this white, well, we call it zinc oxide tape. We call it magic tape in the military because it's, it literally holds lads together. And I was like, well, yeah, I'll just strap it up, keep the swelling at bay and lots of painkillers. I'll be fine. But it didn't work out that way. How long were you there? How long were you waiting for before you actually? Uh, it, 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 well, by the time I got, by the time a point of injury into uh, the safety wagon, it was nearly two hours. Okay, right. So, um, but this, this, so this is where I then developed the nickname of Nutty because uh, <laughs> they, they were like, yeah, so f from now on, I've been in the military known as Nutty because. There's not, a, there's not many things that I haven't sort of tested myself against yeah. um, and seem to find myself very broken, so I haven't learned very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that resilience and you're smiling the, uh, the face of adversity, uh, but you've had a few operations on that leg or on your foot. Now, how many operations have you had and... Now we can actually unravel a little bit more around the true extent of your injury over a period of time, of course. But the surgeon comes over to you at some point, and you spoke very fondly of this surgeon, and by all means, sure who she is, uh, when she came over to you and actually said, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to amputate your leg. But how many operations did you have prior to that? So, um... Obviously, when I, when I sustained the injury and the nearest hospital at the time in November 15 was in November 2015 was the, it was Abergavenny Hospital. So they said, are you aware that you've broken your leg and you've sustained quite a nasty injury? I was like, no. I said, what, do you just need to put a, a plaster of Paris on it? And they went, it's a little bit more than that. We need to keep you in for a few days. We need to do some extensive metalwork repair, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so over a number of courses of a year uh, of years, uh, in total, I had 14 operations to, to try and save the leg where on the last, last operation in February, 2019, um, I had a lady looking after me, um, and a la and she'll always play a massive part in my life. And because not of, because of the surgery, because I truly am so grateful of what she's done. Um, she saved my life, she saved my marriage, and she's allowed me to become such a stronger and more rounded person than I am to this point today. Um, so uh, that lady's name is Alex Crick, and Alex Crick um, runs a war clinic in Salisbury District Hospital, and uh, she's been running that with uh, a colleague called Rod Dunn, for the best part of 10 years plus, because it was to offer a service um, outside. Once, once the veterans leave the uh, Royal Marines, not, sorry, not leave the Royal Marines, but leave the armed forces, so they could, if they were stuck in a hole and that they could possibly get some prioritization, or Alex had, uh, through her well-established uh, links, that she could probably maybe push them in that direction to, to aid that, that help. 
Um, and I just remember Alex on the, in February, sort of doing opening, doing a massive exploratory operation on my left leg to try and work out because she tried to work. She worked on a number of areas prior to this to sort sort nerves out, and then she did one last op and she went, Matt, this is the last op, and I think it it'll work, but I'm I'm not 100% if it will work, but let's just if you're up for it let's try it and let's go forward from there and i went alex i trust you 100 percent. you uh, all you've done is put my best interests at, at heart and i said i am so grateful of that because i said what you've done for me is give me that hope in in moving forward because up to this point i all i was doing was just dragging around a limb that was so painful become hypersensitive um swollen and it, it, I suppose it just become a talking piece or, and it becomes the sort of center of attention of myself and my wife's life. And it sort of encapsulated us. And instead of my wife and me becoming husband and wife, it become patient and carer. And it was so hard to sort of absorb that. And then when Alex sort of reconvened with me about six to eight weeks later, I sent her a photo of my foot and it was purple, it was still swollen, and I developed drop foot, so I couldn't I couldn't lift my foot up. Even with any sort of specialist device, these electronic braces. And I just sat and Alex just said to me, she went, Matt, that needs to come off. That needs to be amputated. Um, I know you don't want to hear that, but I said, she said, that is it will give you the active life that you want as a 33-year-old. And I went, right? She goes, do you trust me? And I went, of course I trust you. I said, I've trusted you this whole time. So she said, leave it with me. I will present that to the team because I don't want you to do that. And we'll go from there. And I, I don't know if the team preempted it or, or what, because when I joined Headley Court, which was the center of excellence at the time down in Surrey for, for medical rehabilitation, at no point did I ever thought I would end up going for an amputation of my left leg um, from what originally started as a as a dislocation of a of a left ankle um, and then the team agreed I had to sit a several uh, several processes through pre-amputation clinic to see a psychologist just to make sure that I was I, obviously because once you remove the foot uh, unfortunately you can't go back unless they want to stick it on backwards, <laughs> um, which I was hoping that they wasn't going to. Um, and then, yeah, I got, the, I got the green light to go for, well, the first opportunity that Alex could do it was on the 1st of August in 2019. And I suppose up to that point, I hadn't really thought about it because, again, she was giving me an opportunity to move forward and I'd put all my eggs in one basket with this, this one last decision. Um, because I couldn't, in my head, I couldn't face sitting in a wheelchair with this this leg because it was so incredibly, I can't describe the pain that this was, this leg had developed. I've been in, I know, I've, I would say I've got a fair opportunity or fair understanding of pain, whether it's through sporting pain, through pushing yourself or military pushing yourself in a different sense whether it's through saving someone's life or achieving a task in order to make someone's life better so this and this was completely different and to this day i do not regret having that amputation because it saved my life and allowed me to become the better person i am and it's allowed me to flourish as a person and I'm so grateful of that lady because, again, she saved my life so much. Matt, three days after you had your left ankle amputated, you told your wife and your best friend that you decided to take on a bike race. Now, <laughs> bear in mind at this point you, had, you only had one leg. <laughs> and even more to the point, this is not just a normal bike race. It's not just getting out and doing a 10 mile around the town. This is a big thing. Can you tell us what this bike race is and, and how long it'll take to complete? And also, I think, why? Why you decided that this was what you wanted to do? Well, the first question that your listeners are probably going to think is, 
I now know why he's called Nutty, because <laughs> he, he, he must be missing something upstairs. I know he's missing a leg, but he's definitely missing something upstairs as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I suppose uh, the, when, when my leg... So the, the leg was removed in two stages because that's the way that um, this, this unique uh, plastic surgeon has come up with the best way of removing someone's leg in order to progress through rehab as quickly as possible. So yeah, the the bike race um, I'd seen in this this magazine called Blesma, which is British Limbs Servicemen's Association. They look after every sort of veteran who's either missing limbs or loss of sight, or as now of loss of the use of a limb. And I just sort of glazed over it and didn't really think too much of it. And I see this race across America, and I thought, oh, that looks alright. I wonder what that is. So I, I I suppose I looked at it in glance and went. I, in, in myself, my, uh, my stupidity came out and I went, I can do that. So again, I just emailed them and said, can you send some more information? And for some reason, they responded very quickly. And I said, yeah, I want to be part of this. Um, I, didn't commit, I didn't tell them that I was still laying in hospital awaiting surgery to have my leg, left leg fixed properly post-amputation. Um, I just said... Uh, I sort of told a little white lie. I, I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in a really good place. I, I am a new amputee um, and I'm really keen. This is my sporting background. And I suppose it, I, I was so desperate to be part of this unique opportunity. And here we are. We're, we're I suppose, I'm part of the team. And I, and I think you, you asked me, why did I want to do it? I suppose for nearly four and a bit years, I lost who I was as a person. I'd had a, I'd had an amazing career. I'd had an amazing swimming career. And then once you've had that taken away and your sole purpose at that point is just, you get up, you lay on the sofa, your wife has to go to work. Um, and my wife's a physio um, and she was working within the NHS. So she would leave me a packed lunch. She'd leave me a, a, a cardboard bottle so I could go to the toilet because I couldn't get off the, uh, couldn't go to the toilet at the time. And um, and then eight hours, twelve hours later, she'd come through the door, and I suppose that was the first person I see. So, yeah, the I suppose I, I wanted, I'd lost my identity to who I was as a person, and I just sort of see this glimmer of hope. It was like that epiphany moment, um, and I just went, I want some of that because that's who I am. That's that cheerfulness in the face of adversity. That's that person who went through training, Royal Marines training, smiling. Um, and I thought, I'm not going to let this injury define me. I'm going to define who I am. Because the last four and a bit years of my life has been consumed by being, in effect, a pincushion. I was in and out of hospital 14 operations later. Um, and then obviously it resulted in an amputation. So yeah, when I presented this to my wife and my best friend, they just looked at me and they went, have you actually signed up for it? And I was like, yeah. And they went, oh, okay. And I think that's as far as they thought it went. And I went, you know, I've been accepted as part of the team. And they went, no, nah, you haven't. I went, yes, I have. And they were like, okay. And I think they thought I was a little bit delirious because I was on medication and I knew what I was doing. And I suppose that's me to a T is. I, I don't want... There's no such thing as you can let anything defy you as a person, but it's what do you want in life that's most important. And I, I, all I wanted to do was go back to being that jolly raw marine, that sporting athlete who used to smile. And I lost that so much. And this was a way of encompassing all of that. And I suppose I looked at it as closure of this injury that which I thought was going to be very short and has actually you know consumed a lot a lot of time of my life mm. and with that being said as well so being an amputee it's not held you back from taking on able-bodied projects can you just tell us a little bit about your house renovation project <laughs> yeah so um so so the military sort of said to me they said um do you own a house? And I went, no. Um, and I said, they said, well, don't you think you should start considering purchasing a house and then we could sort of make some potential adaptations if that's, if that's entirely appropriate. And I went, okay. 
well, it didn't take me long. I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm very, I'm very, as, uh, as you said earlier, um, Keith. If I know what I want, I'll go and get it. And I sort of convinced my wife that we want to live in it. Well, we always both wanted to live in a cottage, but I'd seen this cottage. It'd come off the market and it'd come back on. I went, that cottage has got to be ours because it's meant to be because it's just come on and I've just flicked it on. And she went, okay, and. At that point, I'd put an offer in, it got accepted, the military went, yeah, it looks great. But me not just being happy with that, I went, I, I started, I, once we got the keys to the property post-COVID, um, when the first lockdown had been eased slightly, I just sort of maybe sort of got a bit carried, <laughs> a bit carried away and I started pulling down walls and uh I sort of convinced myself I was doing this to, to aid my recovery. But I suppose what I was trying to do is I was trying to keep the stimuli in my head because uh, I'm a very big person. That I need to achieve stuff in order to keep my mental health in a good place. And COVID was a really hard, a really hard uh, a challenge, especially when you're so used to achieving stuff. And all my achievements up to this point had been big achievements, whether it's through sporting, the Royal Marines. And I suppose maybe I, I, I took that head on. And, and to this day, I'm still doing the renovations. And me and my wife, are, I think she looks at me. Uh, how my wife is still with me, I do not know. But I'm very, very grateful for her patience and tolerance of, of my um, excitability uh, of doing projects. Because I don't like to do things half, by half. I'm, I'm, I, some say, yeah, Matt, you are a perfectionist. But some say I'm a pain in the backside as well. <laughs> I like to say I like to play on the, the fact that I'm a perfectionist, not a pain in the ass. That's why they keep. Yeah, that's why you're being called nutty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, and it's a, I, I suppose I sort of forget that because you know I'm not one to to just do things by halves. Like I I got taught how to weld while I've been doing rehabilitation, so I couldn't just leave it there so I went and bought myself a full welding setup and I'm sat there in the garden I've now built this elaborate bird table out of steel and it seems to keep growing and I think people are thinking what is he going to weld me to that that bird table at the minute well it's well it's funny you mentioned that actually because we there's some there's some stuff going on in the back garden here I think there's a table and a few chairs need producing so when her uh, <laughs> When we're when ordering, when the lockdown's done, we'll uh, we'll give you a call. Yeah, no, definitely do. I got, I, you might get one leg longer than the other. <laughs> Listen, Matt, this is inspirational. It's really soul searching as well because it puts perspective to life. Where you know we go through this current crisis that we are going through with COVID, and but the way you going and attacking things head on now with that in mind what advice would you give to anyone currently going through similar situations to yourself uh, i think i think the, the biggest thing that i would say to someone um and, and whether you're listening you don't necessarily have to go and buy a house and knock it down and rebuild a house because, you know, it doesn't matter what challenge or what it is that you're trying to, to work towards. Look at how you want to get towards that, that aim and set yourself. So if it's to do 5K, for example, um, maybe set yourself tasks in order to build that foundation and use those tasks. And it doesn't necessarily mean go to the gym every single day. Because that's, an, that's not healthy in itself. The fact that recovery is just as important as it is to, to exercise. And exercising, and I suppose what a lot of people forget is that exercising the brain is just as healthy as it is exercising the body. And I suppose that's what COVID has taught me is, yes, it's great that I'm pulling down walls and, and, and I'm learning lots of new skills through the, the odd mistake of, possibly electrocuting myself and thinking have I uh, have I um I'm still here but the bigger things of what people don't really see is that when I am uh when I can't be on my leg full time and I can't pull down walls how do I capture that that um that 
that momentum to still carry on. I've developed and found that by doing something what they call paint by numbers, which I'm not an artist, I'm not, I'm not that way at all, but I opened my imagination to try in lots of different new things. And that was what sparked my catalyst to keeping my momentum and my mental health in the healthiest state. Because before I was of that mentality, I'm not doing that, that's, that's not suited to me. Where when you're put in a position of this pandemic, which nobody, I suppose it, it caught everybody off by guard, off guard. And the first 10 days of, of lockdown, I just went into raw marine mode, tore head on, this will be fine. Thinking oh, within a month, that'll be fine, over. But when it started to drag on for longer and longer, I, I realized that, well, I'm, I haven't got the tolerance to stay on my leg all day to go and do these fantastic tasks. So how can I do that? And my wife mentioned, she goes, oh, I've seen this thing on Amazon where it's, it says paint by numbers. And I went, I'll go in then. And before you know it, I'm halfway through painting these numbers with paint all over me as well as the canvas. And, and I've lost two hours of my life, but I didn't realize the, the benefit of giving me some me time, which then allowed me, because what you don't realize is when you take yourself away from social media, Facebook, Instagram, um, and all the other platforms, and you actually have to focus on something that is that you can have an influence on, i.e. the canvas, because if I put that time and effort into the canvas, then it will look good. It gives you that time to reflect. And a lot of unanswered questions came out of, from me doing the paint by numbers, which then allowed me to go, give me the confidence to try a little bit more cooking. And then from there, the fallout was, I then got on YouTube and taught myself how to use a sewing machine. And I started making a dog bed, which then uh, moved on to making a few face masks for people around the area who were short, who couldn't get hold of masks. And I suppose I'm just a lot more open-minded to trialing new things. And if I fail, I look at it as it's not a failure, it's a learning point in order to move forward. And, and I suppose that's what my message is, is yeah, it doesn't matter if you get it wrong. It's as long as you've learned from it and you've got something from that, that's all that matters. And if it allows you to achieve your goal of whether it's 5K, 10K, or riding across America, it doesn't matter because I've, come up with so many different plans now in how I'm going to attack the training towards the race across America, just from giving myself some me time to reflect, opposed to looking at Facebook, Instagram, uh, and those different platforms. And it's kept me such a, a healthy, motivated individual in wanting to do more. And I suppose when you asked me, would, would I be interested in doing the podcast? And I was like, yeah, because I want to share this, this, this information of what I've got, so someone else, it might help one person, it might help a hundred people. It doesn't matter whether it helps one or a hundred, as long as it's helped one person. And I suppose that's what's so important is, is feeding off that information that is gonna influence you. And, it, and the most important part is you in this process. So <clears throat> the inspiration that the listeners will get from, from this, episode will be quite powerful it's when you and I first met uh, on a phone call a couple of weeks ago a few weeks ago in actual fact relationships start to get built honesty and trust starts to forge when you reflect back on really your relatively young life what positive life lessons have you learned about yourself Matt and How's that going to help your future uh, for you to sustain lasting relationships? I suppose, I suppose the biggest thing I've taken from this is if you're hurting, you're hurting. Don't kid yourself. And the message from that is be honest to yourself. Like there's nothing wrong in saying you're wrong. It's recognizing when you are wrong there's also a, a, there is also an opportunity of when you are right and 
but as long as you're not forceful in that manner. And I suppose the motivation that keeps me going forward um, on, on this is, is that way of capturing myself in order for me to be honest. And before this, uh, and I'll briefly touch onto it, is that I wasn't aware that I had any PTSD symptoms. And I, I just assumed that this was normal. Um, and I did come highly frustrated. Um, and I suppose in reflection, I was, I was telling myself I was okay, but I wasn't because I, I see it as a sign of weakness. And looking back now is, if I'd have been honest earlier, I probably wouldn't have hurt as many people, whether it's family, friends. And it's taken a lot to rebuild some of those bridges, but I just see it as a sign of weakness for me to, to admit that I'd had maybe you know, a head problem with, 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 the, with the mental health piece. And since, and I suppose this is what COVID and, and painting by numbers and teaching myself how to do these new skills has allowed me to do in, in the reflection piece is if I carry on with the way I'm doing is, is, is not being honest with myself, I'm going to lose and push all these people away. So it taught me that by being honest with myself and being a lot more frank and open with people and asking for that help has allowed me to where I am today. And my mental health in the last nine months has come on so far from me just engaging with a psychologist and being open and realizing that they're not judging you, they're there to help you reconfigure and allowing you to flourish to where you want to be or in the future. So Matt, looking back through this whole process that you've been through, are there any people that you want to reach out and thank for the help, guidance and support? I know you've mentioned the surgeon, but is, is there anyone else in this process? I suppose the first person I really want to thank and um, is my wife. She's been my rock. You don't realise, I, I didn't realise how much I put onto her as a person you know I'm very blessed that she's a physio and uh, and it took for me to this year to realize that actually I was using her more as a carer than a wife and I suppose that's been one of the hardest roles to step out of because it becomes a bit of a, an, a habitual habit of I used to go Hills can you just do this and she'd look at me and she'd just do it but now I have to really think hard because that's not fair to keep putting that on her because when does work finish for her? And I'm so grateful for her sticking through me through this. And she has been one of the guiding mentors of, of this, allowing me and giving me the confidence to go and speak to people. And she's the person who's encouraged and supported me to carry on challenging myself through, especially with, in in respect towards the race across America. And not only that, my family have been amazing. Like, I don't often give my family praise because I'm quite a proud person. Um, but they've seen me, you know, go from being on top of the world with, with as a world-class athlete to Royal Marine, and they've been so proud. They've always been proud of me throughout my military career. And I suppose they see their son deteriorate. And I suppose I just think, the easiest option for me, I suppose I went back into, which it comes from the swimming, was I'll just shut everyone off because they don't need to know my problems. And I suppose that's something that I've learned from that is that I then had to explain to them, obviously when my leg was about to, to have an amputation, that I'm going through this. And I suppose just admitting and being vulnerable Showing them that I was vulnerable showed them that they didn't need to be vulnerable and in safe hands, which has allowed for a better relationship to move forward. Do you know as you share that information, Matt, you're sharing your, well, you're sharing your soul, you're just being who you are, you're honest. As you've been mentioning your family, your wife, how do you feel about sharing that? How do you feel about talking about those people? Uh, my wife, my wife used to call me a rock. She went, she, she, she was like, have you actually got any empathy? But 
before I would have completely agreed with her, but since me opening up and dealing with my emotions a lot more and being okay with that, I'm okay to speak to people about that now because I'm not embarrassed. I know it's a natural, a natural thing for, for people to get upset. And it, I suppose, I don't know where the stigma comes from, but it's, it's just a, this ability, I suppose blokes do. And I, I, I was part of that, but I now understand that actually I, it doesn't matter if I get upset, but because it, that, if I did carry on like that, I would have potentially lost my wife. I'd have probably pushed my family away and I'd have been a very lonely person. And then who knows where the future could have ended up. But I suppose, yeah, it's so important to recognize that your, you know, my wife has been there for me throughout the process and she's been amazing. Now my final question for you if you had to describe Matt Edwards, what would you say about yourself? I want to, the first thing that comes to my head is I want to say I'm a spaniel in a box. <laughs> <laughs> um, because no, and, and I suppose this is why I've ended up with with the Springer Spaniels because I just I love the fact that they are uh, all dogs they're exactly the same. They're so pleased to see you, um, and they've got that unconditional love. And and I suppose just touching on our last question is I've got unconditional love, and that's something that I'm learning to this day is that I want to give that unconditional love and. And this is the stuff that I'm touching on now and learning is how to give that unconditional love and show my wife that I'm very grateful and I, I am more caring. So how would I describe myself? Was that the question? Yes. Mm. Yeah, so how would I describe myself in a more sensible way? Uh, I'm a happy, honest, go person. Um, I will work hard for anyone and I just strive for, uh, I strive, for, I want to say I strive for excellence, but I just strive for perfection and I love to learn. That's something that this process has taught me as well, is understanding something is fine, but I want to know that a little bit more. And I suppose it's, it's identified that I'm a very open learner in that sense. I thought I was a very closed book and very no, this is the way it has to be done and it, it's only that way when actually in fact I'm very open and, and I love different ways of learning and listening to different styles of learning. Matt, this has been inspirational. It's been it's a wonderful episode. It's diverse from other episodes that we've done and the people that will be listening to this I'm sure will be enriched and empowered by such a, an inspirational character. The strength of your soul and the honesty in which you have shared your answers openly will, I'm sure, endear many towards you. If there was anyone that needed to contact you, how can they get hold of you? Uh, I have an Instagram account, um, but I, I would say probably the, uh, the best bet is to go through my email account, which um, I, can, I can put via, via the, the bottom of this link. Yeah, we'll share that. Can I, yeah. can I thank you on behalf of myself and David? Because it's been, it truly has been very, very, uh, very open. I didn't expect anything other than that. I don't know whether I can call you nutty now or I don't know how I can call you but <laughs> yeah, yeah, or smiley. Uh, but thanks, Matt. Thank you. No, 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 thank, thank you for having me on because um, the, the best, I, and I, I appreciate you allowing me to be as open and honest because the only way I know and, learn, and I'm still learning to this day is, is by sharing what I've learned through that journey is only going to help others. And the key message is be honest to yourself and you will flourish. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated 
and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also, you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>